Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. Where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired assorted media depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian. And today I'm joined by fellow medieval historian, TikTok celebrity, Marie Pardon, to talk about one of the stranger bits of medievalism on TikTok, Mom Millennial, if I am pronouncing that correctly, and her didn't exist theory. So welcome, Murray. Yeah, thank you very much for having me back on the podcast. I'm glad thank that I can, so you know, bring our, bring our discussion to such a high level and bring crazy conspiracy <laughs> theories to the world of your podcast. Thank you so much for bringing this to me. I think my brain might be broken, but I think thank you. <laughs> well, we'll see how you feel after we're done with our discussion. Yeah, there we go. So would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular media? Yeah, so I'm Mireille Pardon. I'm an assistant professor of history at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. I'm also a medieval historian, and I know Sarah because we were in grad school together. I don't think I've ever been introduced as a TikTok celebrity before, so that was rather exciting <laughs> for me. Um, but I am active on TikTok, making mostly sort of medieval history inspired comedy videos is sort of my niche. But yeah, so I think that this is a rather sort of interesting example of something that happens on TikTok kind of a lot, unfortunately, because Mm -hmm. in the world of TikTok, you're just watching these videos that are, you know, 15 seconds long, a minute long, or three minutes long. And those videos are often kind of clickbaity. They want you to, you know, keep watching them. They don't want you to swipe to the next thing. And so you do see a lot of people making sort of outrageous claims about history. Sometimes they're just an oversimplification. Sometimes they're like a legitimate fun fact. Sometimes they're just wrong. But Mm -hmm. this is probably the most extreme example of it that I've seen. And also someone who's very much sort of dug in and continued to make a very large number of videos about the fact that Rome did not exist, was not just sort of a one-off. Yeah, there are a lot of videos. I watched only a fraction of them and And that was was probably enough for you. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, and so I heard about this from you because I think actually you, uh, I was staying at your house on, uh, as uh, on my Maryland for Thanksgiving, since you are basically the kind of halfway point uh, between my house and my parents' house. So me and me and my dog out and hang and hung out with you and your cats. Yeah, who... and I'm always happy to see my, I don't know if my cats are always happy to see you and Opie, but I'm always happy to see you and Opie. <laughs> I think my cats could, they can deal for a night. And Rascal was a yeah. 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 And Barak uh, should he be came around getting to better me. socialized, so. Yeah. Rascal came around to me. I'm not sure if either of them came around but well maybe next time but yeah yeah, I think I think when you were staying with me that night I was in a very bad mood about this particular issue yeah I think you had like just discovered this particular yeah yeah and I think also at that point that was sort of before there was the wave of TikTok debunkings because Mm -hmm. I think what happened was this is someone who on TikTok had made a lot of sort of outrageous claims but none that sort of reached the reach of Rome does not exist. Though she did have some other videos that went pretty viral. Uh, Like for example, she was talking for a while about how Alexander the Great was actually a woman, mainly because the city is called Alexandria. Um, Okay. Yeah, I think most of the other evidence had to do with sort of the idea that, well, we can't really prove that he was a man, which I mean, is kind of true for a lot of ancient figures, but you know, very hard to like definitively prove. Um, But anyway. 
yeah, but really then, can prove very few people's gender. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, things in history, you just kind of have to be like, well, we have more evidence of this than the other thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was also the Jesus Christ means clitoris healer. Oh, right. One. Yeah. So I think that was her other, her other big sort of pre-Rome thing that made it mm-hmm. big. And there was actually a third one, which was a lot of people in the ancient world, not just sort of in the Mediterranean, but, you know, sort of across the globe had black lights and that black what? light tech. <laughs> <laughs> I knew some of these. So, so black light, black light technology is actually much, much older than we think and was used in like all cultures across the world. Like she showed some like, like indigenous arrowheads or things, as well as like a bunch of other like ancient artifacts that apparently glow under black light and therefore black lights were being made all around the ancient world. Yeah. So, so just, this is all just to say that Rome doesn't exist is not sort of the first example. Yeah. So she has a long history of this whole situation But today we'll be focusing mostly on her claim that there was no such thing as the Roman Empire. I believe from what I understand that at most there is a kind of spread of a culture that was sort of linked with the city of Rome, but not original to it, which I also have a number of thoughts about. And that everything that we think we know about Rome was created and put into place and forged by the Spanish Inquisition. Is that yes. how you would yes. characterize? No, I think that's whole. I think that's situation? a good a good summary. I would also add that she's also made some claims about the Latin language. The, yes. the Latin language itself was an invention of sometime in the 15th century or so. And that all earlier examples of Latin are in fact forgeries. And I think that mm-hmm. sometimes she has made explicit statements saying that this was all done by the Spanish Inquisition, but she also sometimes just says sort of the church. Right. Which makes, you know, slightly more sense than specifically the Spanish Inquisition. That was also, you know, quite a, quite a claim. Yes. She also has some kind of bits here and there where she presents as continuing to actively contribute to this forgery, basically like white archaeologists in the early to mid 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that actually one thing that she does a good job of is sort of drawing out like kernels of truth, like mm-hmm. sort of talking about the way in which early archaeology was kind of a mess, but then very much extrapolating that to the idea of yes. all academics, all classicists, are arche- all archaeologists, in fact, can't be trusted and are sort yes. of contributing to perpetuating the sort of great lie that if you just sort of open your eyes and, you know, look at these things yourself, you know, do your own research then you'll sort of come to realize. Yeah, and I find a little bit confusing what precisely her stance is on modern classicists. My sense is that she seems to think that they are deluding themselves because otherwise realize that their entire life is a lie. Yes, yeah. So she's made some rather... um... Rather strong statements condemning just the field of classics in general, but also sort of in her responses to specific people. Um, Mm -hmm. So when people sort of comment on her videos, especially someone who like is an academic or especially if someone's Mm -hmm. a classicist, she'll sort of respond with, well, you know, you're like, you have a whole degree, but not a lick of common sense. And this is just typical classicists who want to keep believing this thing because they don't want to have spent their life studying something that doesn't exist. 
but it's interesting because ultimately it's not like the classicists are all in the pay of the church or indoctrinated Mm. into this and they all realize it's a lie but they're not telling us it's that they're all really 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 dumb dumb. yeah 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 (laughs) i think it seems to me that they're they're just dumb and because there there definitely is sort of an element of church conspiracy in sort of the idea of oh like you're just trusting the documents that the church hands to you so the church is quite powerful and smart but all of the academics are quite dumb very Um, very stupid Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> which is sort of yeah. unfortunate for our profession. Yeah. I think it also very much misunderstands academia in terms of academics wanting oh, yes. to disagree with each other. Because mm-hmm. if any academic discovered that, you know, let alone Rome didn't exist, but just like one document was misdated, like one document that we thought was actually ancient. Yeah, like a document that we thought was an ancient document that, or like an ancient text that actually was written in the 15th century, that would make someone's career. Yeah, I mean, because it's even like, I found it so funny when there was a recent article about the Vinland map being, uh, mm. you know, official to be a forgery, mm. that the article to some extent presented it in such a way that lay people reading this were like, oh, like they, you know, really everybody like mm. pulled one over like those dumb people at Yale, they couldn't figure that out. People have known it's a forgery for a yeah. long time at this yeah, point. Yeah, and 30, not for reasons 30, based 30 on years? like lab-based scientific dating. I think also there is sort of like right. a misunderstanding of like how historians date documents that's at play both in sort of a yes. little bit of how the Vinland map thing was being presented and also in this whole conspiracy theory. Sort of the idea that we're just sort of guessing until we actually sort of bring in a scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas in fact we- How documents are dated. No, I mean, we can get an immense amount of information even if there isn't an internal date. There's immense information that we can get out of script. There's an immense amount of information that we can get out of the text itself and the kinds of material that the text presents. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting is that one of the reasons people actually knew the Vinland map was unlikely to be real was because it's actually too accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I remember, didn't they? didn't someone find like which map that they think it was copied from? And it was like a more modern yeah. map. Or like a map that's modern enough that would have, it would couldn't have been during the time period that they thought it was produced. Exactly. And that that level of precision in terms of what the coastline looked like is something that mm-hmm. they didn't actually have the technology for at the period in which the map was meant to be, have been produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also saw that Vinland map <laughs> um, article and was sort of like, mm, this is a little bit like we're just discovering this now. Because I explicitly remember that very much being taught as sort of like an example of, of a forgery. Like yeah. this is sort of a lesson on forgeries as a concept and it's not as if like no one has ever discovered a forgery like there are a lot of like monastic charters that were forged Mm -hmm. but those are like known to be forged and it's not because someone dated them with like scientific means like it's mostly done through like diplomatics I'm not sure I think also it's sort of very much discounting like the entire field of diplomatics as a concept you're back the church absolutely is preventing this conversation from happening I mean, typical, just, you know, suppressing academic discourse. Right. The other thing is that we've done dating on manuscripts, and it's pretty rare that the dating that we've done Mm -hmm. on manuscripts actually reveals anything that's different, particularly Mm -hmm. from what we've come up with already, that sometimes it can allow us to be a bit more precise, Mm -hmm. but that generally it's if anything I feel like people are pretty skeptical about manuscripts like if a manuscript shows up with sort of no real provenance like it sort of came from a shady dealer and they're things that don't really make sense in terms of like 
how is the manuscript put together? Is it like with mm-hmm. other documents? What is the script like? These are all things that are really difficult to fake. And most yeah. manuscripts don't come to us that way. Most manuscripts have like been in an archive for a while, yeah. have a connection to all of these other documents and are being studied in their context, not sort of just free floating, could have just been created at some point, maybe in the 15th century. Yes. So related to that and the fact that these manuscripts have provenances and that they have dates, I want to specifically address the Spanish Inquisition aspect in terms of just some dates. Because the thing that is true, right, one of the kernels of truth that she is able to really push is the fact that there are a lot of uh, Roman texts that we don't have uh, copies of them that date back to the first or second century, say, you know, either either BCE or CE. Yeah, yeah, that certainly there are a lot of texts that we are mostly relying on the sort of medieval copies of them that exist as yes. opposed to things that, because most we don't really have actually a lot of documents from that time period. Like we have a few and we have mm-hmm. inscriptions, but, yes. you know, like sort of long literature and things, most of those are medieval copies. Right, which of course relates to the survival of paper, right? We don't have mm-hmm. that many examples of, uh, of kind of paper papyrus that has uh, survived from 2,000 years ago. Yeah, which sort of makes sense. <laughs> and the it ones tracks, that we do, yeah. of course, she considers to be Greek, not Roman. But yes, which we'll get into in a moment. But yeah, I do so want to get yeah, that's to... a separate thought. <laughs> Yes, but I do also want to just quickly say, so she in some of these versions specifically says that it's the Spanish Inquisition who's responsible for this. And so I do just want to emphasize a couple of dates. So the Spanish Inquisition is different, first of all, from the Papal Inquisition, right? That these are two different institutions. I don't know that she knows that. Yeah, I'm not sure she knows that also, because in order for like the scale of this conspiracy, you would think you wouldn't want to pin it on an institution that's active just in Spain. I think she just hasn't heard of the Papal Inquisition is kind of my theory, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Because I think she might be just using Spanish Inquisition maybe as like a stand-in for a sort of spooky idea of the church. Right. When in reality, right there. So there is an, a papal inquisition, right, which dates back to the 13th century. And that is initially focused mostly on targeting heresy. The Spanish inquisition is something that basically Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile petitioned for permission from the Pope, uh, who I believe is Pope Sixtus IV to establish the Spanish Inquisition, essentially on the grounds that they had a unique problem that other places and countries don't have, which is that basically because there were these mass conversions of Jews to Christianity back in 1391, and now they're not very good at being Christian, that they have this problem essentially of all of these uh, Judaizing converts, basically, right? And that other places don't have similar concerns. So they need a structure that can respond to their unique situation and get permission to do this. And that is in 1478. And that also does push her sort of date of invention quite late. Yes, it does. She is she is a little bit consistent with she doesn't mention a lot of things that happen in the medieval period. So I think she I think she actually might be while it doesn't make sense on the level of we're pinning it on an institution that is active in a sort of specific geographic location, it does maybe make sense for her timeline in that I don't think she sort of trusts any document produced in the Middle Ages and considers them to be all just forged. So timeline-wise, right. it's consistent. Right. I also kind of think she doesn't know anything about the Middle Ages, but that's a different... <laughs> we'll get well, into didn't, that. Didn't you hear the, you know, 6th through 14th centuries, just plague? famine, disaster. 
nothing. Yes. I think she, I think she describes them as a clusterfuck of disasters that are just kind of repeatedly happening over the course of this period. And that's just how things are going. Um, so essentially I do want to note just that she does think that essentially, so anything right, that is allegedly Roman must be a forgery, but I do again, just want to say that as an example in terms of, say, a text that very explicitly talks about the Roman Empire as a political entity. Suetonius's so Debita Caesarum might be a good example of this. And this does exist in manuscript form by the 9th century. And uh, this is, again, something where I don't believe they have done the kind of dating that she wants them to do. Um, yeah, because I was about to say, I think I know her response to that. <laughs> I'm sure that would be her response to that. If you aren't going to scientifically date your manuscripts, they're just worthless because they were handed to you by the church. But it does, that idea does, essentially it requires a really long chain of forgeries, right? Where because this is then a text that's known, right? So it's referred to in other texts. Yeah, I think I think part of there's like a scale issue here, number one. And I think there's also like a misunderstanding of how we like reconstruct original text that we yes. usually have like an entire stemma because we have like a bunch of different versions of this text that were produced yes. to different places. And then looking at sort of the similarities between the different versions, people try to sort of guess mm-hmm. at the original text let alone, you know, the fact that people read this text and mention it in other places. I think also there's just a volume issue, like the sort of volume yes. of textual evidence that we have. Or also, if we're considering the entire language to also be forged, just mm-hmm. the volume of documents becomes pretty right. massive pretty quickly. Right, exactly. And so essentially, I guess it's that, you know, you have basically like 800 years worth of documents that essentially she's a, she must be arguing that all of them are forged. So is she saying that because of this clusterfuck of disasters, allegedly, that was happening, nothing was produced or nothing survived? Mm-hmm. And just the entire, and then that's 800 years of forged documents. Yes. And just to emphasize the volume also. So I think if we want to play, if we want to play devil's advocate, (laughs) because I will, Uh if I I were trying to impersonate her, her worldview, I think if someone pushed her on this, I think she would try to then sort of like walk it back and Mm -hmm. then say, well, these were all produced in monastic scriptoriums. So therefore still under the firm hand of the papacy. Because I think also, again, this is very much sort of overestimating the power of the papacy during the medieval period. Again, you know, only considering documents in Latin produced in Europe to exist and not sort of considering anything outside of that. But I do think that might be what she would say, because it's just sort of like very like massive. We can't trust anyone, but particularly we can't trust things that have any relationship to the church. So that would include anything that a monk has like touched. But one of the things, of course, that I can then say to that, <laughs> yeah, and this also say, speaks to out. the volume-related issue, <laughs> mm-hmm. as I've said before on this podcast, the sources that I work with are a group of sources called notarial registers. And essentially, that means that they are created by people called notaries who draw up copies of contracts for various clients, so loans, real estate sales, uh, marriage contracts, wills, and they would draw up a nice copy for their client, but they would also keep a copy for themselves, essentially in this register for their own records. These are in Latin. Yeah, yeah, that was good. And, and what language are those in, Sarah? These are written in the Latin. language um, that was invented by the church? Sorry, yeah, I can, uh, I can, I can promise that they are written in Latin. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I can swear to you, I, I don't know Greek. I can swear to you, it's not in Greek, it's in Latin, <laughs> the language that I know. So it is in Latin. 
They also are very clearly shaped by the Roman legal tradition, which I imagine she thinks is also a forgery if she knows it exists. But anyway, and I just want to emphasize this volume question in terms of really the sheer amount of work that forgery would have Mm -hmm. had to require in that I looked at three cities over the course of a century And in those three cities over the course of a century, I had basically 600 books, each of which contained 100 to 300 pages that I could have looked at. And this is a fraction of what's available in, certainly in that region, even in the Western Mm -hmm. Mediterranean more broadly, even more so. Yeah. And I think if we're sort of like keeping a mental list of just sort of general misconceptions of the Middle Ages that this theory rests on, I think one is sort of this like absolute control of the papacy. Two is also just like the number of documents that we have that Mm -hmm. aren't only sort of like religious documents or documents that are being produced. Like, you know, you're a monk in a scriptorium, you're like copying out this like famous work of literature or something. So to emphasize all the records of social Mm -hmm. history that we have. Yeah, and to emphasize that as well, the vast majority of those records of social history are also not being produced by people who have any formal link whatsoever to the church. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, yes. they're Christians. They, you know, probably yeah, like we haven't even moved outside Sunday. of like Christian Europe yet. But, yes, we haven't yeah. even done that yet. <laughs> but uh, it's actually, in particular, it is. Uh, so the notaries that I am looking at, uh, they are people who are appointed by secular authorities. They are appointed by kings. And in fact, you are not eligible to be a notary, to be appointed as a notary if you have taken holy orders, if you essentially have mm-hmm. basically any, even the smallest formal connection to a church, what to the church whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it really is sort of like, it rests on this assumption that like, we don't have records like that from the Middle Ages since under this theory, you know, mm-hmm. it's all of that time period is just sort of a clusterfuck of disaster. So why would we have? like economic agreements between people or really any records of legal systems, like any law court that's not a canon yeah. law court. Yes. And we that have would a lot also of those be, records. A lot of those are operating in Latin. And yes, there are and a lot of people who work, work with... with like court records. Yeah. Um, are, are your court records? Minor vernacular. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I figured because we're <laughs> so minor in French and Dutch. But certainly, yeah. But certainly in a bunch of other places, like I know in England, secular mm-hmm. records are done in Latin. France goes to vernacular pretty early, but definitely like early medieval French legal systems. Are, and it um, also, that highlights an interesting point that at precisely the period that she associates with the essentially like forgery and creation of Latin and the faux Roman Mm -hmm. empire is actually precisely the period when in fact, we're seeing kind of more documents being produced in the vernacular. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because I haven't looked at, I haven't spent much time looking at it, but that's actually true in Catalonia as well, that you start to see that some of these records are actually being produced in the vernacular. So I know that Mm -hmm. for example, like the city council documentation, is increasingly going to uh, that would be things that you'd see in the vernacular. Yeah. So let's talk about the Latin versus Greek thing, which are the videos. Yeah, okay, that that's most, another interesting part of this. This was the experience that most was just me feeling like I was losing my mind because I really felt like she is actively gaslighting mm-hmm. her viewership. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I think that part of this, though, does have to do have to do with sort of how TikTok functions, that mm-hmm. it's sort of easier to gaslight people in this medium, because yeah. you're just sort of talking to them face to face on their screen. It's a very short video. And no one's going to sort of go outside of it to sort of fact check things, right? Or that sort of a, you'd have yeah. to really make the effort to be like, I'm getting off TikTok. I'm going to make sure this is right. And she's sort of controlling the images she shows you. So she can show mm-hmm. a document and be like, are you blind? There's also a lot of, the tone is very um, kind of like you need to open your eyes and think for yourself. Yes. So it's very much, if you open your eyes, you can clearly see that this document is not Latin. It is in fact Greek. And she's doing this. It is Latin. <laughs> it is Latin, yes. And that's and that's where I definitely just felt like I was being <laughs> gaslit, right? Because if mm-hmm. she has a number, so, you know, we do have a few kind of fragmentary documents that are actually, mm-hmm. you know, documents that are produced during the Roman period. And these are the things, right, that she goes through. And she says, it's not in Latin, it's Greek. And I'm looking at this and saying, like, I, I see that word. I see that uh-huh. word. It says yeah. Maxima Romani. <laughs> yeah, well, I do kind of wonder if also she might be banking on a lot of people in her audience not knowing Greek or Latin. I'm sure. Yeah. So I think that's also sort of part of it. And also part of sort of the issue of TikTok in general is that you're speaking to a very public audience and mm-hmm. every sort of speaker on TikTok seems like they have the same amount of authority. Like no one or very yeah. few people sort of get on TikTok and they're like, hello, these are my credentials to talk about the subject. Right. Most people talking about history on TikTok are just random people talking about history. And so yeah. a lot of times they're right. A lot of mm-hmm. times they're not though. And this is a pretty mm-hmm. egregious example of that phenomenon. Right. And especially because it's three minutes Wrong, well, excuse me, three mm-hmm. minutes long, right? E- or at most, even if yeah, you have credentials, you're certainly not establishing them in every mm-hmm. video. At most, that they would have to actually go to your bio to see what your credentials mm-hmm. were. I mean, you don't, you have, you have credentials, and it's not. <laughs> yeah, I do. I have immediately apparent. Masquerading as a fun TikTok person. <laughs> Yeah, because it's not immediately apparent in every single one of your videos, like what your precise credentials are, Mm -hmm. you know, so that there's really no way to distinguish, especially if you're just watching the videos and not necessarily Mm -hmm. going and looking at somebody's profile more carefully, that there's no clear way to distinguish. I I think that actually this whole experience on TikTok did kind of challenge my, like, I very much don't want to sort of like gatekeep talking about history on TikTok. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this whole experience really, really challenged me to hold that belief. And I think I do still hold that belief, but it really did challenge me to see someone who has a huge audience, who yeah. has like 95,000 followers, who's yeah. just talking about this. And you and like you do see people in her comments, you know, being like, this is wacky, blah, blah, blah. But you also see people in her comments being like, wow, this is so interesting. I'm so glad I just learned this. I never knew. Yeah. That's really too bad. <laughs> it is. And as I said, especially because I mean, so there's the, there's the way she talks, right? They're like, are you blind? And obviously mm-hmm. this is Greek. She also even has one video where I found it really striking that she shows the uh, image of the document very quickly. And then she has it up for a very short amount of time. And then what she has up is that document where she has written over what the letters that are there with Greek mm-hmm. letters in such a way that it's really impossible to see what's under the mid, what's under the overwriting mm-hmm. she's done and make a compa- and make a comparison. Yeah. And I think that it's videos like that that do make you wonder, does she know what she's doing? Yes. Because I think that that's something that's really hard to tell with this whole thing. 
Like, does she, does she sort of truly believe everything she says, or is she just sort of trying to get famous online and get views or somewhere? I mean, it could also be somewhere anywhere on the spectrum between those two points. Like maybe she does truly believe this, but also thinks that, well, you know, I also have to like do some things to make my points be a little more convincing, or maybe this mm-hmm. fact doesn't really fit. So I'm going to maybe massage it a bit. Yeah. And it's something, as I said, I, this is really why I felt like I was kind of losing my mind when I was watching her videos is because I was like, I could feel this person trying to gaslight me. Mm-hmm. I will also note that in one of her, uh, at the time of recording at more recent videos that she also like has this at some, she had this video that uh, I think you sent me that was out like very recently, like this past week, that was, uh, some like men on the internet are like being dicks and being like Rome exists. And then she's like, mm-hmm. no, it doesn't. I can't remember any of the specifics other yeah. than that, but it made me actively furious mm-hmm. as a woman mm-hmm. historian watching this yes. that okay just so there's there's also mystery. yeah there's also very careful optics i think this is also part of her mm-hmm. strategy she's very very careful with her optics and that she only publicly responds to men mm-hmm. in that like if you notice the videos that she stitches and uh-huh. and to be fair like the man that she st- men a lot of the men who she stitches do have more followers than me, but I also think it's purposeful. I make, I made lots of videos critical for me, but Mm -hmm. she's not going to do a stitch of me. What she's going to do is she always does stitches of men and then makes it very much about how like, Oh, this is just, you know, specifically like white men on the internet being terrible and having a whole like hissy fit about Rome existing and they're all wrong. Right. That she never, and there are plenty, I've seen plenty of women on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people in general who aren't specifically white men mm-hmm. talking about this, but she never she never responds to any of them directly because it doesn't it doesn't sort of fit as well. Right. And she seems very invested, right, in this progressive language. And then she also is like, you know, oh, we, you know, only, you know, white Christians, right, would deny the fact that the church mm-hmm. is monstrous. And so, of course, they can do something like this. And to be clear, I don't think that the idea of the church wanting to do awful things mm-hmm. is unrealistic i think mm-hmm. that the church yeah i think like it- any medieval historian would be like yeah. yes church has done some pretty bad things yeah as a medieval historian in particular a scholar of medieval jewish history mm-hmm. and a person who's jewish myself uh yeah no i don't have a lot of good to say You're probably about not the first being- one getting in line being like let me defend the church's historical record it actually infuriates me half the time when I'm like watching films set in the Middle Ages because I'm like, I hate being put in the position <laughs> where I have to defend the church just by saying they're not like a Disney villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though at the same time, I feel like narratives like that, and I feel like also specifically this narrative, are also mm-hmm. in some ways like giving the church a lot of credit by saying that they're yeah. this like all powerful institution, which exactly. is also kind of like saying a wrong thing about the church that makes them sound better than they are like they aren't that exactly powerful. <laughs> like yeah, maybe they really want it. i'm sure the church would love to control this oh yeah narrative. i'm sure they would love to invent a like ancient civilization if it benefited them mm-hmm. i mean that's really where this doesn't hold up to me right is that the church just wasn't that powerful and in particular at some point she actually kind of makes this claim where she says well the way this happens right is because uh the churches control the entire economy. Mm-hmm. If you know the yeah, smallest amount <laughs> about, in particular, urban economies, mm. that deeply doesn't hold up. Yeah. Well, again, did anything happen in the Middle Ages? 
Apparently not. No. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I think, I think again, that's another, yeah. Again, we can add that to like assumptions that it's being resting mm-hmm. on the idea of the middle ages is just a sort of series of disasters. And the only people who ever have any kind mm-hmm. of power are the church. So they must be controlling, you know, production of documents, the entire mm-hmm. economy and everyone else, I guess, is just sort of starving outside their gates is sort of how she portrays mm-hmm. it. Let's also talk about some of the aspects of this in terms of there's actually another essentially assumption that she is resting on, which also is kind of fundamentally at odds with the self-consciously progressive language that she's using, Mm. that she is essentially relying on the assumption that a lot of people do have about the Middle Ages, that when we say the Middle Ages Mm. or medieval Europe, but or, you know, whichever, that we're talking about a space that is exclusively white and Christian. Mm -hmm. Yes, which is, I think, especially interesting because of the way she frames everything, because her argument really only works if you think that the only documents that we have related to Rome, the only people who ever sort of like cared or wrote about Rome, or really the only documents that we have for the medieval period are like white Christian Western Europe. And that is intensely not true. Yeah, yeah. And also, yeah, so it's very strange. So it's feeding into this very, like, it's very much resting on like a sort of very like traditional Western civilization narrative of like, you know, sort of Rome to medieval Europe to early to Renaissance Mm -hmm. to early modern Europe, that sort of like progression, sort of ignoring anyone who's not Christian or also ignoring like the entire Byzantine and Islamic worlds throughout the medieval period. Yeah. So ignoring, right. That, yeah, the the Byzantine empire is this entire empire. The Byzantine empire for talking about Rome. That's yes. Because the Byzantine empire, of course, Yeah, Byzantine, just for listeners, uh, you might have heard the term Byzantine Empire before, right, to refer to the empire that existed uh, until until 1453, centered around the city of Constantinople. You might have heard this referred to as the Byzantine Empire. That's actually fundamentally a modern historical term to distinguish it from the Roman Empire, which is actually what they called themselves. They called themselves the Roman Empire. They called themselves Rome. Yeah. Like anyone at that time would have like self-identified as being part of the Roman Empire and referred to their leader as the Roman Emperor, as would like also some of the people around them, like people yeah. who and that's actually the them. and that's actually the Islamic name. That's the the name that you see is yeah. Islam and Arabic Islamic yeah, exactly. sources for the Byzantine Empire is yeah. actually is actually the room R U R U M in terms of how it's typically yeah. transliterated, right? It's Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we have in addition to as we've talked about all of this sort of wealth of documents coming out of the like Western European world written in Latin, let alone all of those documents. I feel like even if we just threw those in the trash and we're like, okay, we will accept that all of that in the hands of the church, mm-hmm. you also have to explain all of sort of the Greek and Arabic sources. You have to explain all the Greek like, and Arabic sources. Rome existed, especially yes. since like they saw the Roman empire as just continuing in the form you, of what we would call mm-hmm. the Byzantine empire. So you, you also have to deal with all of those sources, which, and that's something that I've actually never seen this person address. Right. So I don't know, that also might be a case of sort of maybe like willful ignorance because it very Uh much doesn't work. You also have to explain the Hebrew and Aramaic source Mm. material. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us more about that. Yeah. (laughs) So even just talking about essentially just bare minimum, like traditional Jewish texts, which in terms of, you know, the, the manuscript history, I will say, you know, is complicated, but it's that, but once you take, you take into the, in, into account the fact that essentially there is this process of constant citing and reciting of those source materials, right? So that 
even if you don't necessarily have conveniently, you know, a manuscript of the Talmud from exact of the Talmud in full from exactly the period where you want, it's almost impossible to assume to, you know, say just to just discount the Talmud because there are, uh, it's cited by so many rabbinic authorities from a combination of uh, places in the West and in the East for a very long time, for essentially the entirety of the Middle Ages and beyond. These sources, so even just yeah. talking about, so the, the Mishnah, which is uh, produced in uh, around 200 CE, the Babylonian Talmud, which is produced at sometime between about 500 and 700 CE, Midrash Genesis Rabbah, I'll add in here as well, written between about 300 and 500 CE. So we have a lot of texts that are relatively early, in fact, some produced within the time period of uh, what we would call the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And they refer to Rome quite clearly. And in fact, this makes sense, right? Because Judea was under Roman rule. There are a series of Jewish revolts against Rome. That's the uh, the destruction of the Second Temple happened in the context of the uh, revolt between 66 and 70 CE. There were additional revolts in the second century. There are then relationships that we see between Jews and the Roman Empire in that context, which then are transformed by the Christianization of the Roman Empire that essentially already in the fourth century, we see the beginning of uh, the essentially the uh, promulgation of laws that begin to treat Jews fundamentally as uh, as kind of fundamentally as having a legally different status as Jews. So things like that, you're not allowed to own a Christian slave, things like that. You're in particular, Jewish men are not allowed to marry Christian women. You see a lot of these coming out relatively early. Mm-hmm. But so we have yeah, a, so this yeah. is another sort of curious omission, because mm-hmm. this is all sort of this is all a form of like documentation and sort of like a long tradition of history mm-hmm. that it's hard to sort of fit into a narrative of the church is controlling how we talk about history yes. and is meant to this whole idea of the Roman Empire, because how how exactly would that work then? Yes. And as I said, they they talk really explicitly and overtly about the Roman Empire. So uh, just a couple of actually specific examples of this that I want to bring in. So one is that uh, if anybody has seen Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian, which I'm sure many people have, and you might remember the scene, uh, what have the Romans ever done for us? That scene is actually bizarrely similar to a passage in the Talmud where there's initially some rabbi that talks about, oh, these are all the cool things that we get from being part of the Roman Empire. And then, uh, you know, like, it's so cool that we have these like public baths. And then this other rabbi is like, the public baths is just so they can hang out with their whores. And like, these are all the ways that these things that you think are good are actually bad and are actually just to allow the Romans to impose their kind of authority and culture upon us. And like immorality, essentially, that is a uh, a kind of fun example from the Babylonian Talmud from the uh, the Tractate Shabbat. Another example that I especially like is uh, from the Midrash Genesis Rabbah. So essentially, what that text is is that it is a basically kind of goes through and tells uh, stories related to the biblical book of Genesis. Uh, I often talk about Midrash as being kind of Bible fan fiction. Because what it often is, is that it kind of tells these stories that either explain some kind of interpretation of the biblical text or fill in a gap, but that it does so through the kind of creation of narratives. And so one of the narratives that we see is about the uh, Rebecca giving birth uh, to Jacob and Esau, and uh, that is this description, right, of the two children are the kind of two nations struggling and they're struggling in her womb. And the explanation that's given for that in Midrash Genesis Rabbah 
is that, well, what these nations are is that Jacob is obviously the Jews and Esau is Rome. Yeah. So I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to see if there's a way that I can play devil's advocate for her position. Because to my knowledge, I think she's never addressed any Jewish sources at all. I think probably exactly for this reason, that this is a mm-hmm. either a tactical omission or just an area of ignorance. But I'm not sure. I mean, so yeah, okay. So maybe, maybe you could try to sort of walk back the argument and be like, oh, well, the word Rome existed, but just not the Roman Empire as we sort of know it today, that this is evidence of successful branding of what she calls a traveling circus at some points, but I'm also not sure how that really would work. (laughs) Right. I mean, I suppose that that would be what the argument would be, but it is something that I, I really would struggle with, especially given, right. So that Midrash Genesis Rabbah in particular is produced, right. In a place, in a kind of context, right. Where Rome is actually the ruling power, Mm-hmm. And so, and it's not, and you're saying it's not a traveling circus. No. Um, and so, right, that's the, I mean, that's fundamentally, right, the context for why they're defining Rome as their kind of quintessential enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it sounds like very explicitly in that story, like Rome is being posed sort of like the, like sort of state authority. Right. The Babylonian so Talmud is a bit. To- yeah, the Babylonian Talmud, I will say, is a bit more complicated, right? Because this is produced in the Persian Sasanian Empire. So it is this kind of different context. But one of the other things, of course, to keep in mind about that context is that the Jewish population of the Sasanian Empire in the period in about 500 to 700, in which the Babylonian Talmud is ultimately being produced, a lot of that, that Jewish community essentially is a community whose ranks are swelled by basically refugees, at least in the sense mm-hmm. that they are mm-hmm. Jews who, with the Christianization of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. felt like it was no longer a place that was particularly hospitable to them. Yeah, well, I think this is also touching on another sort of fundamental issue with this theory is that the idea that like Rome doesn't sort of exist in isolation, that it does also have contact with other societies that produce their own documents. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Since again, yes. If, if, you, if the idea of Rome is invented, then what about what about like the Sasanian Empire or anyone else or people yes. like fleeing Rome, anyone who's not sort of actively part of the Roman Empire or producing documents sort of as a Roman? What do we sort of do with all of the connections? It's not as if sort of the Roman Empire just exists and never traded with anyone, never fought anyone, never had any contact with anyone. And I'll even add in as just a kind of additional fun fact, because uh, so there's a recent discovery of a Roman mosaic in uh, the United Kingdom, which she has a video oh, yeah, say, this is the attempting one to dressed, debunk this. Right? Yes. 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 <laughs> so she has a video attempting to debunk this. And one of her central claims debunking this is the clothing doesn't look Roman or Mediterranean. And I just want to bring this up because I just want to bring in a fun little example of a synagogue that is uh, in what is now Syria called the Dura Europos Synagogue. Really stunning building. This is a uh, kind of elaborately decorated building. The idea that Jews actually always kind of strictly followed the kind of prohibition on figural imagery is uh, very much an inaccurate one. So uh, this is a, you know, an elaborately decorated with a lot of imagery of uh, essentially kind of illustrations of biblical narratives. 
And one of the things that's really striking about the Dura Europa synagogue, which is in a place and time period, essentially in the third century, where it is on the border, basically, between the Roman and the Sasanian empires. And one of the things that's really interesting looking at the imagery in this synagogue is that it is essentially the clothing kind of goes back and forth. So that, for example, in uh, the depiction of the story of Esther, which is actually a story that Raid is fundamentally connected with Persia, uh, I don't know how Christians pronounce that. Do you know how Christians pronounce that? The king in, in, the, book, in the book of Esther? No, I do not. Uh, I think I once tried to puzzle it out by looking at the Latin Vulgate and decided on uh-huh. Ahasuerus, but I don't know. Christians weigh in. I also yes. once found, recently found out that Christians say Nehemiah, and it like really like threw me for a loop the first time I heard it in terms of what they mean, because I'm like, Nehemiah? Anyway, so this is like the weird stuff that comes from, you know, going to a Jewish school and only hearing Jews talk about the Bible for most of your life, but... But so the book of Esther, right, is a story that is like actually set overtly in a Persian context. And for that, the garb is very overtly Persian, which then highlights the contrast in some of the other narratives that, for example, the Exodus narrative, and this is interesting because Egypt actually is under Roman rule at this point, the Exodus narrative, they are all just straight up wearing togas. Like, it's just like (laughs) Moses and Aaron are just standing there in a toga as they cross the Red Sea. (laughs) Yeah, I also think that it's sort of strange in general that we're like considering whether or not a mosaic is Roman sort of just based on the clothing, though. Yes. Oh, yeah. I don't think yeah. that's a valid yeah. so argument that's also at kind all. Of a, especially sort of like on like the edges of the Roman Empire. Yes, exactly. That there's a lot of things that she is bringing in essentially as evidence that there's no such thing as Rome, which are actually evidence of, first of all, the fact that Rome itself, right, is uh, essentially kind of takes in things from different mm-hmm. cultures around them. Yeah, I don't think yeah, anybody would say that there's... We're talking about, like the borders of the Roman Empire. Right. I mean, or even Rome itself. Like, yes, we all know, right, that like the Greek gods basically become Mm -hmm. the Roman gods. Like we know Mm -hmm. that Rome does a lot of, that Roman culture does involve, right, a lot of cultural Mm -hmm. borrowing from other contexts. And so I don't think any, and so it's this And you're not going to like export your Roman fashion to like a really different climate zone also. Right. And it's this kind of weird argument that she's making, which is ultimately... I find really essentialist in a lot of ways, basically saying that there's no such thing as Rome because Roman culture isn't distinctly ethnically cohesive enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think I think it's sort of interesting to think about sort of like the the sort of strange claims that or not strange claims these sort of like very specific ideas of what Rome is and what history is that her whole theory rests on. Like in the same way yes. that her whole theory is sort of resting on the idea that it's sort of only like Western Christians writing in Latin who mm-hmm. sort of do history or record history. It's also rests on this sort of very specific idea of Rome. Like Rome is just yes. sort of people in togas and the Roman Senate and Roman coins. And that's sort of what Rome is. Right. And if you see an aspect of the Roman empire that doesn't really specifically map that, match that image, then it's not really Rome. Or if you have someone writing right. in Greek, because you do have people like in the Roman empire writing documents in Greek. Of course, yeah. Yeah, but that's also sort of seen as like, oh, well, then that's not really Roman. That's just Greek. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is odd in that it feels, I mean, it it oddly kind of maps onto in some ways even some of the like 
weird things that happen kind of in the Roman Empire itself, right? In terms of like the idea, right? That so, you know, we have these various Germanic groups that end up, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Visigoths sack Rome, right? We end up uh, with the breakdown of the Roman Empire in the fifth mm-hmm. century, right? We have all these different like little kingdoms. A lot of them are kingdoms that in fact are, are kind of groups of people that in fact really kind of thought of themselves as Roman in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And it was the Romans who kind of didn't uh, fully want them. That they, mm-hmm. you know, didn't, they didn't think they were yeah, Roman Yeah, that they're sort of like officially Roman in name, but were still sort of seen as not Barbarians, right, yes, and being yeah. not quite Roman. And she's kind of buying into that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I haven't actually thought about it, but it is sort of buying into that idea of like, oh, these people who are sort of like sort of joining the Roman Empire or who are sort of Roman just sort of by virtue of living within the bounds of the empire. Like, oh, those people like... are not real Romans. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. And again, because I find it unclear from the videos that I watched, whether she is aware of the existence of Roman law or of the influence (laughs) of Roman law, which is something that first of all, never fully goes away. It is foundational if you're looking at legal codes of uh, uh, the, you know, so for example, like the Lex Visicatorum, something like that. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at legal codes of the sixth century, they are fundamentally essentially Mm -hmm. relying very, very deeply on Roman law, even if they're also kind of bringing in other aspects of traditions from their own kind of cultures in some ways. It's that so A, it never goes away, and B, then also it comes back, right? And there's also, yeah, the whole like revival of discovery of of Roman law in the 12th century and everything. Yes, exactly. So So I don't know. So that too. I think in terms of sort of the survival of Roman law, like in like the sort of whole like Lex Vitagathia thing, I think that would probably be a bigger problem for her argument in a way that perhaps the rediscovery Mm -hmm. of Roman law, she might be like, oh no, that's just Greek. Right. Because it's Justinian. So. Uh, right but the fact that she does like to call roman things just greek true but that we do have uh, the these things right that are that are very clearly right survivals of roman law oh uh, i need to say something else actually specifically about the lex romana visicatorum because she actually mentions it oh Uh, really she refers oh wait what did she say about it so the other thing that it's known as is the breviary of Alaric. Mm-hmm. And she refers to it very briefly as an example of, uh, yeah, it's one of these texts that people say are Roman, but it's really only from the 15, from the 1500, from the 1500s. And so clearly you don't know. Oh yeah. It's like not all from the, the 1500s. Oh no. It is the text itself, right? It's supposed to be from 506 CE. And yes, mm-hmm. the manuscript is, this, this surviving manuscript is later. It's from about 550 CE. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> and this is something actually yeah. that jumped out to me, uh, not because I knew offhand what the oldest surviving manuscript of the Breviary of Elric was. It's because I looked at the script and I said, that's not oh, a 16th uh-huh. century script. Yeah. I said, yeah. that's a also, 16th because that's century how- script. That's how manuscripts are dated for the most part. It is, yes. And (laughs) I'm not even an expert in that. Uh, Uh You know, I'm very much like, that's very much not the kind of work that Mm. I do, but it's something that as medievalists- But it's still such like a stark thing, like the way that scripts change over time. And like people who are like, obviously like even you could tell just sort of based on century, but people who, like that's what they do. They can tell like Mm -hmm. specific area, like very detailed time. Exactly. 
Exactly. And yeah, yeah, and I've had, you know, paleography has been in terms of that kind of, you know, using a script to date a manuscript Mm -hmm. is something that, you know, I took like one class and in graduate school, right. But it's not the kind of medieval studies that I do. But as I said, yeah, but I could, you know, just as a, you know, medievalist who has the most basic Mm -hmm. of training in that could absolutely look at that manuscript and say, absolutely not. That's not where she's, that's not from when she says Mm -hmm. it is from. Yeah. I'm sure she would say that they just made up all of these different scripts. And, and that's part of the like yeah, yeah, thing too, right? I think also that they made the up all of these yeah. scripts. Yeah. Yeah. Cause also, I mean, I think we're moving back into like the volume problem that I'm not sure yes. that I think if your understanding of medieval Europe, again, obviously the world exists outside of medieval Europe, but even if we're just taking the Latin documents, even if your understanding of medieval Europe is based on the idea of everything was just sort of terrible and it was disaster after disaster and disaster. Right. I think also that's part of misunderstanding that assumes that we don't have this sort of great wealth of documents written in all these different hands that gradually change over time that can be dated to like specific areas of where they were produced. Her theory fundamentally could only possibly work if it were true that there were like 50 manuscripts that the church quote hands to you. Yeah, which maybe she thinks that's true. I mean, I mean, honestly, I think this is sort of feeding into common medieval tropes. Absolutely. Sort of, and yeah, I'm sure like that's why it's been so popular. Yeah. Yeah. Cause and also, you know, the idea of sort of the all powerful church, like this is just sort of an age of mm-hmm. faith that we sort of forget about any non-Christians in the middle ages. Everyone was just super mm-hmm. Christian, just, going to church and the church is the ones producing all of the documents. Yeah. And again, that is what I find so striking, right? Is that she is presenting herself as this progressive voice and this voice of saying, mm-hmm. you know, no, you know, this is like the thing that the white Christian patriarchal establishment tried to do. And we're telling the truth, but that what when she's it is doing is she's regurgitating the most like white patriarchal exactly, narrative. Exactly. <laughs> that she's actually reifying the exact same story that is told by like white nationalists that medieval yes. Europe was this place that is exclusively inhabited and controlled yeah, by all, white Christian men. All people in the middle ages were like white Christian men. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was sort of what medieval civilization was. Yes. And, and, you know, and again, especially as somebody who, and, you know, and as I said, I'm not accusing her of anti-Semitism or anything like that. I know that she is in fact herself Jewish, but it is something that come that is I, something I find especially frustrating as a, you know, scholar of Jewish history. I work with a lot of Hebrew and Aramaic source material. I, you know, I teach a lot of this stuff, you know, this is things that I work with really closely And it's something that, you know, I come across a lot with my students, right? Like my students are surprised to hear that Jewish history is part of medieval history. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating that she is kind of reifying all of these Mm -hmm. narratives. Yeah. And in some ways that is sort of an interesting part of this whole theory that it is sort of based on some of the like most common things that people might believe about the middle ages, which Mm -hmm. is really kind of sad. (laughs) Yeah. But, but yeah, as I said, I do think that is a big part of why it's been so popular is because mm. it confirms mm. so many of the misconceptions yes. that people already have about the medieval past. And so it's very easy to say, yeah. yeah, maybe it was like this. And I think also specifically the medium of TikTok is very good mm-hmm. for sort of reinforcing things you already believe. Like, I don't think most yes. people are on TikTok in order to challenge their belief system. They're on TikTok to see sort mm-hmm. of cute videos that reinforce what they already think. And if you open a TikTok and you see someone saying all of these things that you already believe, and it's couched in the sort of progressive language that you like, because you're like, oh, yeah, those are all things that I believe in, too. 
you're probably, you might like that video and then just move on with yeah. your life and then have this sort of reinforced idea of what the medieval and ancient world looked like. And also a reinforced idea that you can't really trust scholars. Right. Which is not great. Oh, right. And which also very much right fits into narratives that we're seeing in this country. But also, again, this is a sort of interesting way in which she is mm. simultaneously portraying herself as this kind of lone progressive voice, but which is actually very much the kinds of things that people say on the right of essentially this yeah. kind of fundamental distrust of authority and this, the, mm. the science, what the scientists are telling you about mm. vaccines are lies yeah. and what the historians are telling really you about critical race theory are lies. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's one thing that I found sort of very fascinating about this, because this is, I think, my first, maybe I just haven't been in the right circles, but this is my first time seeing sort of an explicitly left-wing kind of mm -hmm. anti-intellectual conspiracy theory, because I'm yeah. used to sort of the things that I associate with sort of right-wing, like sort of anti-vax, COVID is a hoax, pandemic, flat earthers, things as well, mm -hmm. but those are usually, it's sort of, or also, I mean, you know, critical race theory, like their mm -hmm. CRT indoctrinating your kids could also be in sort of that category. I associate that usually more with right-wing people. Yeah. That, oh, it's like all the sort of liberals in academia that we can't trust. But this yeah. is like very explicitly left-wing. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that yeah, it, is, but it has all uh, of those same traits pose, of like, but, oh, the, yeah. the sort of intellectual elite, you cannot trust them. Yeah. So it's fascinating. I also, I desperately want to know if the Romans didn't exist. I desperately need to know who she thinks <laughs> crucified Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's a question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think one thing you can see in her videos when she starts with like the Rome thesis, mm -hmm. that's giving her too much credit to call it the Rome thesis. But anyway, <laughs> you can tell when she starts with the Rome thesis, because prior to that point, she does use the word Rome and Roman in her videos. Mm -hmm. So she does have videos where she talks about Romans crucifying Jesus, but they're all in her the clitoris pre... situation. Oh, oh, right. Yes. 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 To be clear in the um, videos about how Jesus's name actually translate is, translates to clitoris healer. Um, yes. So that's a, it's a whole other rabbit hole. I would like to note that I teach, both of us teach, we teach undergrads. My students, you know, coming in right as 18 year olds into a class, even usually at least one of them knows that the word uh, Christ means anointed one and not mm -hmm. clitoris. Yeah. One, yeah, one I mean, year, I wonder if I'm going to get, I wonder if I'm going to get that at some point when yeah, I'm like, what is say, Christ I think, and I'm like, clitoris, that... and I'm like, excuse me. Yeah. I'm glad that we're talking about this. So now if either of us or anyone listening is in a context where they hear one of these theories come up, at least they'll sort of know where yes. it's coming from and they'll be maybe yes. prepared. Yes. Uh, direct them to this podcast, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's honestly, it's baffling. Yes, it is. It's probably, it's, yeah. So I feel like I've seen like misinformation on TikTok before, but this is definitely the most extreme example. Like I've seen things like for a while it was going around that I forget which Pope it supposedly was, but supposedly there was a Pope that ordered all cats to be killed. And that's what called the yes, Black Death. I saw because that. there were no more cats in Europe. So that's the thing I've seen. There's also something for a while about how all sort of witch trials were because witches were actually just brewers, like people who were brewing beer and right. ale. And because monks wanted to break into the brewing business, they had to kill all of mm -hmm. the women or like invent the idea of witchcraft in order to persecute women who were in the business of 
And that's something that is, I find really sad in terms of that. It's something that is not accurate. And there actually are some really interesting things Mm -hmm. about the ways in which women did get pushed out of the brewing trade in the 16th century. Yeah. There's that amazing book. (laughs) Yeah. It's Judith Bennett's book, Ale, Beer, and Brewsters. I highly recommend. Everyone should read it. (laughs) But that this that this idea, right, got enough traction that it was a Smithsonian article. Yes. I've seen it cited in a work of pop, in a popular history work. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, um, it's, it's kind of sad, right? That then mm-hmm. it's like, we keep spreading this misinformation because yeah. it then keeps kind of showing up in sources that mm-hmm. seem like they're potentially credible. Yeah, yeah. And it is sort of worrisome in general, just in terms of like the spread of information online. Because I also remember seeing it in the Smithsonian Magazine and was really sort of disappointed. I mean, I do think that the Smithsonian Magazine was at least a, I think it was still incorrect, but it was a less sort of fervent statement of the claim than like the the TikTok version, which was very like all witches everywhere brewers. Um, And the Smithsonian, I believe, did actually also publish something of a retraction saying that like, we heard from a lot of historians Mm -hmm. who have (laughs) heavily critiqued this. Mm -hmm. uh, So we just want to make that known. Yeah. But still annoying that it got published in the first place. But, yeah, not yeah. everybody's going to necessarily uh, read that, right? I mean, they're not necessarily going to yeah. go back and look yeah. at it after. No, definitely. And also, like, yeah. it definitely looks, like, very credible. And I could very much understand mm-hmm. if you had, like, sort of no knowledge of the period. And, yeah, you no. Know, yeah, you just sort of read that. And you're like, well, it's a Smithsonian magazine. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's so it's not it's not I just see how it's plausible. It's just that it's wrong. It. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So yeah, so it can spread in a lot of places, but I do think you're right that TikTok is uh, in some ways kind of particularly susceptible, right? Because people are, the way people engage with TikTok, Mm -hmm. you're unlikely to then necessarily look things up. Yes. And definitely, I think there's a tendency to sort of create like clickbait content, especially if you're in the sort of like history fun fact genre. And at best, it's going to be an oversimplification. At worst, it's just going to be blatant misinformation. Yeah. I say as a history TikTok creator, so, uh, <laughs> but I do think I think of myself more as a comedy channel, but anyway. There you go. There you go. And you're not spreading disinformation, at least. No, I'm not. Yeah. Is that something? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's where the yeah. bar is, but uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'm not actively spreading misinformation that feeds into, you know, like these terrible narratives about the middle ages being like dark and barbaric or just only being like white White Christian men writing in Latin. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. Anything else that we want to add in about uh, this TikTok before we move on to (laughs) other segments as they are in this uh, much more just freeform conversation? Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think I'm, I'm good (laughs) in our our coverage. So what we usually have as the next segment, which I was considering abandoning, but Marae, you did tell me that you had an idea oh, for yes, this. So I do have something planned. <laughs> the Fabula Nostra is where we talk about a film or show or something uh, inspired by this. So uh, Marae, do you want to go ahead? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I've changed the prompt slightly since usually it's okay. a film or show sort of like based on or like instead of the film or show. But uh-huh. so instead, since we're talking about a conspiracy theory, I have a conspiracy theory about this conspiracy theory. Amazing. So my conspiracy theory is that Momlennial and the whole like Rome thesis, this is kind of like a, like a false flag. 
So it's being Mm. done by someone who purposefully wants to discredit sort of strands of like progressivism in academia. Mm. So now anytime someone talks about, you know, like talking about people who aren't so any time anyone sort of uses any sort of language of like decolonizing academia or sort of the idea that like archaeology, early archaeology was, you know, maybe not great, or that there are like narratives that are being sort of reinforced and controlled by people in power. Anytime someone suggests that, they'll, they'll, they'll be like, oh, well, you just sound like that mom millennial person. Ooh. So this is all part of a larger plot in order to discredit people who are actually trying to do, you know, like work on, that. yeah these sorts of ideas in academia or in any way trying to like push back against like white supremacist narratives in academia. Yeah. Cause she couches it very much in that language. So anytime Mm -hmm. you try to do that, someone will be able to say like, Oh, well, you're just being like mom millennial. You probably also believe that Rome doesn't exist. So that's my 100% buy that theory. I 100% buy it. I, you know, I think I'm just going to say uh, maybe just uh, read read some books. There are a lot of books Good. already out there, maybe, that you could read. You know, I'm just going to mention one. I'm going to mention uh, Chris Wickham's Inheritance of Rome, oh. an excellent book that talks about early medieval history and the ways in which it is building yes. on the legacy of the Roman Empire. So I, I have this book next to me right now. But the specific reason I had it next to me right now was for a visual gag that I'm sure no one appreciated. But in one of my like sort of kind of like debunk-ish videos about Momlennial, I had myself holding this book, but just like casually. Mm. Anyway, so I wanted someone to see it and get the joke. But I don't, I don't think anyone's like, oh, she's reading The Inheritance of Rome while making this video. Ha ha ha. Joke was there. So yeah, that's uh maybe just read that book. I mean, you know, honestly, this conspiracy theory, I think is sort of on the level of other ones that I have seen in films. I mean, you know, the idea in the Assassin's Creed that the Spanish Inquisition is only in existence to uh, destroy the Knights Templar and order that was wiped out 180 years before. You know, I think that this is similar to that yeah, well, essentially I mean, trying to try to sort of track the origins of this theory that could be a potential influence and uh, you know and you know what i except for the fact that i don't actually want her theory to get this much public traction i do think that a like da vinci code style like weird conspiracy theory like <laughs> movie about mm-hmm. um this being I like mean, and i have to admit i clearly find it fascinating since oh, i yeah Told, no, yeah, I told you about it and came on your podcast to talk about it. So clearly there is something that is sort of kind of draws you in about this. It's so weird and horrifying that you can't look away. Yeah. It's weird and horrifying <laughs> is weirdly like hypocritical kind of in the way it's trying to like push back about the things that it's actually reinforcing. And also yes. I do think that there are some ways in which she is like a genuinely good content creator from just purely the mm-hmm. perspective of how does one create content on a platform like TikTok? Right. I think yeah. if we judge by that, she's doing an amazing job. She just maybe swung a bit too far with the Rome thing because she got a lot of pushback from that. But I mean, she still has, she went from, I think she was up to like 99,000 followers and she then dipped to 94 and now she's back up mm. to 95. Mm-hmm. So it clearly didn't like kill her channel or anything. She's growing no. again. So I mean, <laughs> good, good right. content creation, just also spreading this. Clearly. So 
Clearly, she's clearly yeah. very successful. But yeah, no, I, you know, I could see this being a fun movie with the only caveat to that. If I hadn't known this TikTok existed and that people were actually buying into it, I would have been like, yeah, that would be hilarious. But also I know that there are people who like absolutely bought into like the Da Vinci Code stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, so maybe we should be careful about the the narratives we put out there into the world. Yeah, so uh, so maybe not. Maybe just read a book. Maybe just go read Chris Rickles' Inheritance of Rome. <laughs> or honestly, just like learn Any anything about medieval history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like Chris Rickles would have you a good job, but like also I think just like a general understanding of medieval society existing. Yeah, at all. No, that'd be great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and not so, being uh, specifically a just like series of disasters. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Listen to this podcast, I guess. Plug. Or that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you believe the millennial Rome thesis, just listen to Sarah's podcast more and you'll eventually yeah. get deprogrammed. Yeah. So, uh, usually I also now have the section, the estimatio or uh, rating section where we rate the piece of media on a scale of one to five based on whatever criteria we see fit. I, I beat out one, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I can award this no points at all. Um, so you <laughs> or are we right doing it at different to... scales, okay. right? Okay, Believe so it or not, I've okay. been on this podcast before. I just forgot. So there is actually a rule for this podcast that okay. each person can give essentially one zero rating, but with the caveat, right, that if you are back and you try to give something else a zero rating, it oh, invalidates no! your previous zero and brings it up to a one. Rating? Oh, so, okay. Uh, okay. So yeah, I don't not, know if I want to use mine. Right. So I'm not going to give it a zero because I think I still want to uh, reserve my rating zero, which I believe is the 2007 Robert Zemeckis Beowulf movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is my rating zero at the uh, moment. Okay. And I think yeah, I want to no. keep that. So... So it is so, your choice if you want to give yeah, it a zero. See, I, I do feel like there are complimentary things we could say. For example, I mean, this doesn't work because podcasting is not a visual medium, but like, have we seen her hair? Her hair is like pretty great. She's got great hair. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to say half a point for hair combined with like general charisma. Because actually I will okay. legitimately say, I think that, yeah, I think I find her videos vaguely infuriating, but I think if I agreed with what she was saying, I think I would find her incredibly charismatic. Because I think there yeah. is something satisfying about seeing someone be like, are you an absolute idiot? Like, how could you mm-hmm. think that when you agree with them? Like, I think that there is something sort of sickly, like, sickly sort of feels good when you hear someone sort of absolutely yeah. eviscerating and making fun of people when you're on the side of that person. I'm not sure if that is a great feeling. Mm-hmm. But I think it's natural to feel that way. So I think that she's actually quite charismatic if you like are sort of on her side. So I'm going to say yeah, a one half. Confidence. Okay. Yeah, one half out of five. Okay. For hair and general charisma. Fair. Very fair. <laughs> so yeah, and as I said, I, I cannot I cannot legally go what lower than a one. So I am giving I'm giving a one. So Frey, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Are there places that the listeners could find you on the internet? I know there oh. are. Yes, there are. Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun, as I did the last time I was on your podcast. But yeah, so the main place, since we've talked about TikTok this whole time, I am at 
pardon underscore mi to play on my name because my last name is pardon so it's like pardon me but my first name is Mireille which starts with mi anyway that was an over explanation but I'm at pardon me um, pardon underscore mi on tiktok and that's also my twitter handle but I'm really not very interested on twitter so don't follow me but follow me on tiktok <laughs> And you are absolutely a TikTok celebrity, which I know because there keep being people who send me your TikTok videos. And then I'm like, I know her. Really and they're like, really? Great. Yeah. Oh, that makes me feel really good. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I don't know if I'm celebrity level yet, but I will take the compliment. I will take the compliment. Absolutely. I, I think that it's a good sign that your TikTok videos are circulating back to other other yes. people. No, right? I think that's really cool, actually. Um, I do think we should note, though, given the subject of this video, that the person promulgating the Rome thesis is twice my size on TikTok. Mm. So yeah, follow so, Marais. Just, so, just that to yeah, follow should, uh, so I'm not half the size of someone who thinks Rome doesn't exist. Yeah, seriously. Seriously. Yeah. You're one of like four people that I follow on TikTok because I barely <laughs> understand TikTok. I mean, it's that's like the true you, prize to be one of the four people Sarah follows on TikTok. It's like you <laughs> and other some- three? I okay at least one of them is uh some guy in Ireland in Ireland who owns like nine Irish wolfhounds okay that's fair so, yeah <laughs> I can see why you'd be into that one <laughs> it's not impossible that all the other TikToks I follow are dogs oh I mean I'm quite proud of that then you know I'm in good company <laughs> I've never had uh, yeah, a dog on my TikTok it might just be you and dogs yeah. yeah. I mean, if I'm, if I ever see Opie in person when he's being Popey, I, I would definitely film a TikTok. Oh, with yes. We should, we should, we should arrange that actually. Yes, yeah. That Opie, would be excellent. Opie needs to make her TikTok debut. Yes. <laughs> and then there would be a dog on my TikTok. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so yes. And for everybody's, uh, in case anybody is not aware of this, who is listening, uh, my, my dog is named Opie. And so because of that, I thought it would be extremely funny to get her a Pope dog Halloween costume so that then she could become Popey, which, uh, she is excellent at and very I mean, charming. objectively my favorite Halloween costume. Probably. Oh, I was just going to say objectively the best Pope. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's also true. <laughs> make a lot of great decisions I'm sure I think so I think so yeah. I, I'd trust Popey absolutely and Popey wouldn't invent an entire ancient civilization and forge really just a huge number of documents Popey would never Popey would never yeah Popey just wants belly rubs yeah <laughs> <laughs> So if uh, you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on uh, your preferred podcatcher of choice. And I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Uh, oh, I actually have a five-star review to read that I'm going to uh, go ahead and pull up here. Oh, how exciting. I didn't know this was part of the podcast. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Everyone make reviews. This is awesome. Yes, everybody write reviews and I will then read the reviews. And so I would like to read a review from Magical Molly, who said, I heard about this podcast through the Thank You Five podcast, which I guested on, and I love it. As a huge history fan myself, I love getting to hear a funny, intelligent woman analyze history and fiction. So thank you. Oh, yeah. That's really so, yes. nice. You can listen to me be embarrassed as people say nice things about me. If uh, you would like to write a five-star review where you say nice things about me in my podcast, 
Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Marie, thank you again for joining me. Thank you for indulging this interesting rabbit hole of the internet. Of course. I was thrilled. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.